forever, and your faithfulness is truly great. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. We thank you for our adoption into your family. And we thank you for the freedom to grieve in the midst of suffering. Father, as we read very difficult things from your word this morning, we pray that we would read in light of the hope that we just heard from your word and in song, Lord. Father, we acknowledge that your sovereignty over suffering is true, and yet it's a great mystery. And God, we pray that you would use your word this morning to teach us how to experience suffering without pretending that everything's okay, but also with deep hope through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray for those who are going through difficult things right now, especially difficult things. We ask that through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would reprove your goodness to them in the midst of of frustration and, and seemingly unanswered prayers. God, we pray that you would draw near to us in a special way this morning as we sink ourselves into your word to be blessed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in case you didn't realize through my prayer or by looking up on the screen, we're doing Lamentations this morning. And so I've called this Horror and Hope. Um, There's going to be some verses that we read this morning that, you know, wouldn't really show up well on a flannel graph um, and are just, to be honest, extremely difficult things to hear from the Word of God. Um, And so I'll be, you know, I use humor and stuff, but... This is also a pretty, um, a pretty heavy class, but my hope is that the, the heaviness of this will brighten the light of the hope that we see at the very center of this book. Um, and so let's look at these things together. So horror and hope, obviously, when you think about it, a city being destroyed, and that's what Lamentations is mourning, is the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., most likely by the prophet Jeremiah. When you think about a city being attacked and destroyed, obviously 9-11 is what came to my mind in terms of the history of our country. Um, You could also use Pearl Harbor as well. But these images that we're familiar with, um, you know, we on the one hand, we never forget. But on the other hand, it's been a while since 2001. And we can kind of, okay, we move on. But when we see these images, it kind of brings us back to, you know, where was I when I heard about what happened? Um, I was in seminary class, uh, and Dr. Piper came in and announced that a plane had hit one of the Twin Towers. And then as more information came out, we realized this wasn't an accident. And um, I wasn't alive when JFK was assassinated, but in a similar way, like you can remember where you were when you heard the news. Some of you were living there at the time. You can remember when you hear of tragic things that have great significance. And so let's be willing to dig into the horror, but also um, to shine, let the hope shine for us. So why are we, why, why lamentations? Why would it be helpful for you to read lamentations? You may, you know, you've got the maybe chapter three verse on your fridge, but there's a lot of stuff that you wouldn't really want on your fridge in Lamentations, you know, in a magnet, right? So of scripture verses. So why, 
why read Lamentations besides the obvious fact that it's the Word of God? Well, I hope to show you that. Um, so the first uh, is, is horror. Whoops. I'll just not. Uh, sorry, for you people who are good at PowerPoint, I'm hitting the space bar and it won't. Let's see here. Okay, here we go. So horror. My question is, do God's children ever live in horror? That may be an obvious question, but think about how we tend to think about what we should expect in the Christian life. Do God's true children ever live in horror? If so, can you think of examples? One that comes to my mind is war. Some of you in this room have been present and active in the horrors of war. And I'm not trying to like bring all this stuff back up to like, you know, make things hard, but the horrors of war, you know, does God spare Christians from that? Oh, he only sends the non-Christians out to do it? No, of course not. So as we're thinking about this, my understanding is most likely Jeremiah wrote this book, that as we hear his words, he's a true follower of the Lord sitting in the midst of a destroyed, tortured city. And so that's where we come in this book, is a fellow believer experiencing judgment as part of this city. What, else, what other horrors do true Christians experience? Kate? I mean, I think death is horrifying. Absolutely. It's not right. Yes. Mm. Um, some friends of mine down in Gulf Breeze, they had a, had a fire at 4.30 in the morning. They got their employees out and their dog, and that's it. Wow. They found his Super Bowl ring and her wedding ring in the ashes, and that's it. Oh, my Every goodness. Destroyed. You know, and it's just like that destruction, it's horrifying, you know, or dealing with death, you know, whether it's a loved one or whatever it is. And that, those are horrors that we just kind of separate ourselves from. We don't really mm-hmm. want to think about it, but. Mm-hmm. Laura? Anything else? Go ahead. Yep. You see people in shock, you know, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think about just if you watch a horror movie, what's horrific about the horror movie? What is it that's so horrific? What what's something common to every horror movie? Music? Uh, oh, okay. No, that, that's a good, that's, hey, that's a good point. That's a good point. What else is common to horror movies, Cindy? Okay. Yeah. What else, if it's a horror movie, what else would you expect to see in a horror movie? Yeah, evil seeking to triumph over good. Someone said blood, right? The, the attack 
on the human person, body and soul, to me is the heart of horror. That it's horrific because death and disease were not meant to be here, as Kate mentioned. It's not natural. It's a result of the fall. And so it's horrific because it goes against the very heart of life and what things should be. Human beings are the crown of creation, you know. And so usually it involves destruction of property, but also attacks on the human body and the, and the human soul. So were those who ran from the, uh, these are obvious, but it's just kind of make, think we don't have to stand a long time on this, but were those who ran away from the Twin Towers only non-Christians? Obviously not, but the reason I ask this is because even though in Sunday school we'll be like, no, sometimes we do have a tendency to kind of feel like, oh, I'm being faithful, I'm walking with the Lord, I'm still a sinner, but I'm repenting. So like, God makes these general promises to protect his people throughout the Bible, right? General promises. And so we're still shocked when we as believers are the ones who experience the horror, right? The horror of Job's life. As Pastor Joel mentioned when he was teaching Sunday school, this retributive theology where suffering is exclusively viewed in a judgment kind of lens. Like, oh, you know, so Job's friends wouldn't necessarily agree with where I'm going here, necessarily, you know, or like maybe they'd say they're believers, but they're not repenting or something. So, and then were there no Christians on the plains? You know, think about, you know, God's plan is very difficult and frustrating. You know, you hear about, I think I mentioned this before, someone just graduated from seminary and they, it took like, 20 years to do it, and they had to learn new languages to do it or whatever, and they're, they're just called to their first pass or whatever, and they die of cancer or something. It's like, God, I know your plan's good, but this is hard. Like, I don't understand, you know, don't you want your kingdom to advance? Not that pastors are the only important people, but, you know, what, what's happening? And then were there no Christians in the Holocaust? Corey Ten Boom is an example that God doesn't always remove his people from suffering uh, and horror. And so in this book, we're brought into the mire with Jeremiah, transported into horrific scenes of judgment on Jerusalem. It felt like God had become his enemy. We're going to read passages where in his prayers, it feels like God is evil to him, or maybe not that God's evil, but that God has become his enemy. Why didn't God just remove his true children from Jerusalem before he judged it? You think of, as we heard recently, Abraham pleading with the Lord, for the sake of this many righteous people will you spare the city, for the sake of this many righteous. Well, there's probably more than just one righteous person or ten righteous people in Jerusalem when God destroyed it. There were people who were following the Lord and then many, many who weren't, right? And so it's hard, it's hard to think about and to deal with. And so... Hope. Is there hope in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of judgment? At the midst of lamentations, there is hope because of the Lord's steadfast love, as, as we heard from song and as we heard from the word read. And I like the, the light shining on the building in the city. 
Okay, so authorship and date. Most likely Jeremiah completed the book shortly after 586 B.C. because it's about the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened then. Um, Jeremiah has been thought to be the author at least since at least 250 BC, 250 BC when the Septuagint was written. And so it is definitely possible that Jeremiah didn't write it. Um, I can't say, thus says the Lord, he's the author. But I'm, I'm assuming most likely that he wrote it. And so the structure of this, so this is my amazing artwork, okay? And if you pay really close attention, you'll, it's almost like animation as we go down the structure of the slide. So just a little heads up. So Jerusalem's devastation and call for help starts off with that. And then Jerusalem's punishment and need to cry to God and then actual cry to God. Jerusalem's devastation and call for help. Oh, sorry. Experience of suffering and renewal through hope and God's steadfast love. That's the chapter 3. And then further lament over the suffering of Jerusalem's children, treatment of the true prophets and powerful enemies. And then further description of Jerusalem's woes and prayer for restoration. So chapter 3, there's this hope in God's steadfast love, but then it also goes back down again and, and acknowledges horrific, horrific suffering that we'll, we'll read about in a little bit. And so in terms of the way that Hebrew literature was structured, you know, it may not be perfectly balanced chapter and verse or whatever, but the literary center of the book, it's building, building, building up to God's covenant love, his grace, his steadfast love, the gospel, and then it goes back down, down, down. So that's the thing in the middle in Hebrew writing is often the main emphasis of the book. All right, so theological themes and lamentations. God's judgment is absolutely horrifying. God feels like an enemy as he judges Jerusalem. And I want to read that to you. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The he is God. He has bent his bow like an enemy, with his right hand set like a, like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion... He has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. Though you are walking with the Lord... Sometimes there may be periods in the life of a true believer where God feels like your enemy and not the lover of your souls. That is something that it's not common. It's not all the time. But there may be times when it feels like God is against you. You know, there's this great hymn by um, John Newton, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. And it's like, God, please help me to be more holy. And then in the song he describes how God crossed all his fair designs. Like everything started falling apart when he asked God to like draw near. He said, I hope that in some favored hour at once you'd answer my request and by your love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. But then he talks about all these demonic attacks on him and all these things. And, and he's like, why, Lord? Why are you pursuing your worm to death? And he says that it's in this way that I answer prayers for grace and faith. And so... 
that's something that if you ever feel like that, it doesn't mean you're not saved and it doesn't mean that God's not good. And Lamentations, reading Lamentations can remind you that you're not alone and struggling that way. So this is a very difficult one to read, but I'll, I'll read it. Uh, Jeremiah 2, 11 and 12, and then verse 20. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's what he talks about the city. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. This, this image of a mother, I'm, I'm going to cry, so I need to stop. A mother nursing their child, and the child dies on her bosom. And then verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care, should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the siege on Jerusalem, people were starving so bad that some parents actually ate their children. I mentioned the horror. And so, continue with that theme, chapter 4, verse 10. This is how debased they had become due to their suffering and starvation. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The unthinkable. And obviously Jeremiah feels hopeless. Chapter 3, verse 18. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. You know, you can be in the midst of horror, right? You can be in the midst of great suffering. You could be tortured for your faith like many Believers are throughout the world. But you know what would be even worse than that? If you didn't have hope. And that's what we experienced, Jeremiah, at least temporarily, right? He, he has, he has been, his hope has been taken away in his experience. But God's steadfast love is absolutely trustworthy. Okay, so I got to go, go just make sure you see what I did there, right? So there's the judgment, the smoldering city. Um, I did blue for the city because um, the priestly garments, blue and scarlet and purple. And then that's the blood running out of the city because of all the destruction, right? But then you go, watch this. Boom, right? Those three little wisps, I'm just, those three little wisps of smoke have become the three crosses, all right? There, that is our hope, is God's steadfast love that and we'll see that more as we look at Jesus. God's gracious love gives hope. I'm going to read it again. Chapter 3, verse 21 to 24. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So in verse 18, my hope has perished from the Lord. We just read that. A few verses later, he's stirring himself up in hope. And this is a great example of discipleship and how we walk with Jesus that we are, when we are experiencing hopelessness, when it feels like God is our enemy, we grab onto his word and we grab onto the gospel and we grab onto his steadfast love through the cross of Jesus Christ proved to us and we lay hold of that hope. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. 
His mercies never come to, to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When everything else around you is destroyed, when people that you love are taken from you, the Lord is still your portion. You get God as your inheritance, right? And so um, that's where Jeremiah is finding comfort. Before we keep going, um, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about as you're hearing these things, this horror and hope and feeling like you have no hope? And then how do I get hope? You know, can you speak to that? Have you had times where you were dealing with really difficult things and there was a certain verse that helped you reclaim your hope through God's goodness? I think the hope is a gift from God. The faith. Mm-hmm. You know, when he says that, he gives you mm. that faith. Mm. Okay. Now, you can't ask for that. That's a good point. It's a gift. That's a good point. You need the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to apply his word. Because you can just grab favorite scriptures and sometimes, to be honest, you know, if we're real, it doesn't just, it doesn't flip a switch, right? Oh yeah, Lamentations 3, you know, this just happened, here's Lamentations 3. It doesn't always, it's, it's not, that's not how it works. I'm glad you said that. Yep, no, yep, Elizabeth. Yes. Of this lament. Yes. You know, how much more hopeful it was to me. Like, I think so many people don't know the rest of Lamentations. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you know, this hope came to him in the midst of the worst horror. And that, mm. that, you know, whenever I'm in a very painful situation, that's, it, it's that much more encouraging to know the whole story of Lamentations. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that. Um, in our adult Sunday school class a couple years ago, uh, we were talking about suffering, and one couple in our class had lost a child, and um, others in the class talked about what it meant to see them praising the Lord and worship, uh, having gone through that, and that when we come to worship and you see people singing, you know, some of you know that others are going through extremely difficult things, Right? And to see people calling on the Lord, not necessarily with a smile on their face. They could just be just crying and having a really hard time. But to see them praising the Lord in the midst of suffering, like, though he slays me, yet I will hope in him, it's incredibly powerful. And I think that's one of the reasons that, as Joel and I have talked about, when you're really going through a hard time, please don't flee and isolate yourself. Please be in worship because... Believe it or not, when you feel like you have nothing to offer, when you're like, oh, I wouldn't be fun to be around right now, so I need to like wait till I'm smiley again. Like, You actually have so much to offer your brothers and sisters in Christ just by showing up in the midst of deep suffering. Uh, Kate. We can't stir up hope, but mm. I think this truth, you know, this I call to mind, mm-hmm. and therefore I have hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like we see over and over in Scripture, mm-hmm. they'll recount all of God's faithful mm-hmm. things, you know, and they'll just go back through the history.
history of God's redemption, mm -hmm. and then they have hope mm -hmm. knowing that God is faithful. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think somebody once told me when I was in a very difficult time, they said that God honors those who bank their lives on his word. Mm -hmm. And when we trust that God's word is true, even when we don't feel it, mm -hmm. and what you know, or we feel like I just can't even believe this, but I'm going to believe that this is true. <coughs> mm -hmm. That inspires our hope. That mm -hmm. that brings hope back to us. I think, and um, I think that's really important to remember that God's word is true ob objectively, mm -hmm. apart from what we feel about it or what we're going through. And mm -hmm. so, banking our lives on the truth of His word, regardless of how emotionally spent we may be, mm -hmm. I think that can really help us. Yeah, um, when I'm sharing the gospel with people, and I, if you could substitute salvation for hope in this instance, I, I just say, you know, if salvation was a, a freight train that you're trying to get hit by, hang out around the train tracks, you know. It, it doesn't guarantee you're going to get hit by the, the hope train, but it's good to be around the, the train tracks, you know. That's kind of a weird illustration anyway, but all right. Um, all right. So God's gracious love gives hope. God ordains what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I heard that uh, virtually through Frank Barker's uh, funeral. Randy Pope quoted that, that Frank would say that all the time. God ordains what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And I want to show you that from uh, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. This is a deep mystery, by the way. And so if you're talking to someone who's going through an incredibly hard time, this can give you a framework, but you also may just want to be quiet and just eat lunch with them. But uh, Lamentations 3, 31 to 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. Just let that sink in. Let me read that again. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though He cause grief, right? Pause. He's sovereign over our grief in a sinless way. He's not the direct author of sin. He doesn't sin. He sinlessly ordained sin. <laughs> right? I don't understand that. And he compassionately ordains suffering, he himself hating the very suffering that he himself has ordained for the ultimate goodness of his plan. Though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, his grace, his chesed, the gospel. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. That is one of the deepest things that I could ever think about. <laughs> is the mystery of God's will. His, his decreed, decretive will. He's ordained everything. And then his, his declared will or what he delights in, right? Did God ordain that Jesus would be crucified? Yes. Did he like it that Jesus was crucified? No. Did he, it pleased the Lord to crush him from Isaiah on the one hand because he, he, he was satisfying his justice on Christ. But he doesn't willingly want his son to go to the cross in the sense of like delighting in that, right? And so 
just because God is sovereign over the suffering in our lives and we're all Romans 8 about it all the time doesn't mean that he likes the suffering that's in your life. Tim. The problem with that, the, that whole concept is that's what drives us to Christ, which is mm. what drives others away from God. Okay. If you drive the witness and somebody says, yeah, he's sovereign, but okay, why didn't he do something about it? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I think that we can't do the math and work it out as a geometric proof to people, but we can point him to the cross. Like, I don't understand this, but I know that God was willing to be the Jerusalem that was destroyed at the cross. You know, he was, be, he was willing to be the temple that was destroyed. And so that's a good point. These are very, very difficult things. And you have to have wisdom about what you talk about with people based on where they're at, right? Um, I saw another hand earlier. Uh, yeah, Wendy. It's okay. That's what we're here for. We got, we're here for lots of non not spot on thoughts. You're fine. Yes. So, if God sinlessly ordained sin, mm -hmm. um, He allowed sometimes it's too much to begin with. Yeah. But He allowed Satan to be. So it wasn't that He, he did so because um, He wanted people, you know, to make people like Him. No. He did not get all the sin. Yeah, that's a great. I, I think I know where you're going, Wendy, and tell me if I'm understanding you right. When you hear what I just said, it sounds like God's like, all right, come on, devil, do your thing, you know. God created the devil good. He was a holy and righteous angel. And it was, and, and God and once allowed the devil to rebel. You know, in a sense, there is real free will. Like, I'm going to blink my eyes, Lord willing, unless he strikes me dead. You ready? I just blinked my eyes. Did someone hold a gun in my head? No. I've got free will in that sense. And we have the free will in the sense that we're, respons we're responsible for our actions. And so there are direct agents who actually do the stuff, right? Kind of like it says, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit did not tempt Jesus. Now it's kind of hard for us to get our minds around that. But the Spirit did not tempt Jesus. He led Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted directly by the devil, and so the fancy word for that is secondary causes. Now we use this theological language that God can ordain things, but in such a way where he's not the direct agent, direct doer of the, of the evil. And we can use this theological language and be like, oh yeah, psh, secondary causes. Come on, Wendy, don't you know about second? But it is mysterious and, and, and it is very difficult as we, we wrestle through these things. Um, and that's a great question. But somehow, people and angels do what they choose to do, and they are responsible for it. And yet, that is part of God's ultimately good plan, but it doesn't mean he doesn't hate the evil that's being done. Does that help at all? Is that kind of what you're getting at? Okay, I'm really glad you said that. <laughs> all right. All right, so, and then also verse 48 of chapter 3. 
This says, My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Who's talking there? My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. You know, it's funny. I thought, I thought that was the verse where the Lord was saying that, uh, but it's, I think it's Jeremiah. Anyway, that, I think there's also a verse where it, where it says that where God is saying that my eyes were a river of tears, and you look and it says, says the Lord, but I got the wrong one, so let's move on. All right, God's steadfast love is absolutely true and trustworthy. God would, would, put, an end, uh, would put an end to the suffering and redeem his people. He, he promises this, chapter 4, verse 22. Whoops. Four, Lamentations 4, 22. God says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, will be, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. So he's promising to punish the nation of Edom, but that Jerusalem, that her, her punishment had been accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Now that's a prophecy, right? But that God is saying there is an end to this judgment. It's not going to go on forever. I will bring you back from exile. I will restore you and I will send my Messiah to come and atone for your sins. Basically, there's that promise that God will redeem his people. All right, so let's look at how Lamentations points us to Jesus. First, Jesus is the Lord who judges. Sometimes we can forget that. When capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our English Bibles is speaking about judging, and Jeremiah is calling on the Lord, and like it feels like the Lord has become my enemy. Yes, there's a distinction between the three persons of the Trinity, but we also know that, that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord. And so sometimes we think, well, the Father was doing this, but Jesus, but Jesus is the Lord who judges. He is the judge. And so he is the Lord who brought the Babylonians in to destroy Jerusalem, to judge them. He'd been pleading them with them to repent. He kept sending people to warn them, and they kept killing these prophets. And so judgment time. He's the Lord who judges. He's the Lord who judges Jerusalem the first time in 586 B.C. He's the Lord who judges Jerusalem the second time in 70 A.D. He talked about this in his earthly ministry. Not one stone will be left upon another. And he's the the Lord who judges the whole earth at his return. Why did I put this? This is Wassily Kandinsky's painting of the last judgment. So I just thought it was art history. All right. Jesus is the Lord who suffers. This is by George Rouault, a French, I'm assuming, French painter um, who's done famous paintings of like the face of Christ and things like that. Jesus is the Lord who suffers. He suffers the misery of living as a human being in this fallen world. You know, this is a painting by Rouault, I believe, and it's just kind of dark and weird looking. <laughs> so I thought it was a good image of, you know, the Westminster Confession 
uh, talks in the catechisms, our, our statement of faith as Presbyterians talks about being born into a state of sin and misery. And living the way I live in my life, it's very easy to kind of, I mean, we still suffer, but compared to lots and lots of people, it's easy to feel like we're not living in an estate of sin and misery. That, that the you know, if I turn off the news and I just set my phone down, you know, and I watch Peppa Pig with my kids, we're, like, you can feel like we're not in a, in a state in a state of sin and misery. But as much as we try to forget that, that is the reality of this world. And the divine Son of God, in a sense, left heaven to become incarnate, to live here with us in this sinful and fallen world. He suffered the extraordinary weight of temptation. Um, we've talked about this before, I'm sure, but Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet he was without sin. And you might be like, well, he's the son of God. I mean, how, how hard could temptation be for the one who's perfectly holy, right? Well, the mystery of this is, is he was resisting temptation and different writers have pointed out that you and I don't know the weight of temptation because we give in. You know, Jesus kept resisting and resisting and resisting and resisting and it was hard, it was hard, it was hard, it was hard. That's why I said he, the sinless one, endured the extraordinary weight of temptation. And he also suffered the mockery of his own people. This was another Ruo painting and you have the people mocking him. Jesus is the Lord who also suffered the physical torture surrounding his trial, including being flogged with flesh-tearing weapons, beaten, and thorn-crowned. He suffered the physical torture of crucifixion on the cross. And he suffered the spiritual torture of God's wrath against their sin. I quote it all the time. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew what he was doing going to the cross, but God was punishing our sins on his son and Jesus was enduring the equivalent of eternal torment. The wrath of God condensed into those hours on the cross. Jesus was taking hell for us at the cross, screaming out under the weight of God's wrath against our sin. It certainly felt like God had become his enemy, right? Because we were God's enemies, and our sin was imputed to him. And he took that in our place. But Jesus is also the Lord who makes a new Jerusalem. By his resurrection from the dead as the new temple. Remember Jesus said, destroy this temple, John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it again. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So God destroyed the earthly temple that's actually a picture of the cross when Jesus, the true temple, would come and be destroyed in our place. By uniting us to, to himself as the new temple. He didn't just rise again as the new temple, but by the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in us at Pentecost, he spiritually united us and we become the temple. We are the living stones, Peter said, that are built into this architectural, organic house of God. By covering the earth with the city on a hill, 
saving the nations and advancing his kingdom. We are the new Jerusalem. The church is the city on the hill. And what's awesome is God's gonna, God is continuing to advance his kingdom. I got to go to our uh, Presbytery overnight retreat and a man named Richard Pratt from Third Millennium Ministry spoke to us. And he shared with us all of these numbers about how many Christians there are in these different parts of the world and talking about in this, either now or very soon, Africa will be the geographic center of global Christianity. You know? And this is what he said, out of, uh, out of selfish interest, I'm trying to give the African missionaries good theology who are going to come and witness to my great-grandchildren. That's what he said. And so the, the kingdom is spreading throughout the world. And, and God, this is the new Jerusalem, kind of already not yet. But then, by returning to raise us from the dead to form the new Jerusalem in which righteousness dwells, love for God and one another forever. Going back to Peppa Pig, I'll close with this. I was watching that with Charlotte this morning. If you haven't seen it, the animation's very simple, but there's these cute, it's British, so like the kids' accents are the cutest in the world. It'll melt your heart, okay? And I was watching Peppa Pig, and they do these things, and they're always laughing. They're like fall on the floor laughing, their little stick figure feet up in the air, wiggling over and over again. And they cry tears, like shooting out like garden, you know, anyway. But I, I was thinking about this, it's like, isn't this kind of unrealistic for kids? Like, everyone's always happy. I mean, things happen, but they're just always laughing, and they're so happy, and they're, they're just, I was like, wait a second. You know, sometimes people rip on Thomas Kincaid paintings, and I've done that, and I get it. There's no fall in it. You know, it's all syrupy or whatever. But, like, this is the, this is, it's a reminder that things will not always be like this. Like, one day, we will be laughing and laughing and laughing because we're not sinning and sinning and sinning. Jesus is coming back and we're going to be in and, and the new Jerusalem and we'll actually truly fully love God and love one another. Are you excited? I'm excited. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, you're so good to us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for, um, for saving us from hell. God, we pray for those who are suffering greatly, that you would make us a loving presence in their lives. We pray that people would not run from the church, but would run into a community that welcomes tears and welcomes unsmiles and embraces them with great affection and patience. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.